All right. Um, I think we had, I'll just briefly summarize that for this morning. I think we had a real tour de force of a lot of different topics this morning with real highlights on the new drugs in development, focusing primarily on Islatravir and the NRTTI class of drugs, which you heard a little bit more from by from Dr. Landovitz about a new compound coming along, at least for prevention in that class of drugs as well. We heard some updates on lenacapavir, and we know it's available for drug-resistant HIV, but still in development for um, treatment-naive individuals with living with HIV. We heard about um, prevention and went through a number of really key cases this morning, challenging cases, and I think it was a very successful morning. Um, Dr. Bedimo gave us a, a wonderful update on all the things you might have missed from the literature, focusing a lot on some of the metabolic complications of HIV, and we're gonna hear more about that um, not so much globally the metabolic complications, but cardiovascular complications specifically this afternoon. So let's move into our next talk, which is going to be by uh, Dr. Kimberly Warkowski, and she is a professor of medicine at Emory University and does most of her uh, re primary research in the field of S sexually transmitted infections, and in particular, focusing on those issues related to HIV. And she's going to talk to us today about new insights into treatment and management of syphilis and gonorrhea. Dr. Workowski. It's great to talk about sex after lunch. <laughs> you're, you're, now that your stomach's settled, we'll, we'll get to um, some what everybody comes for is the pictures, right? Um, so what I'm gonna try to do in a short period of time is to give you what I think is the most important updates that you need to know about, and we'll talk a little bit more about um, the doxypep studies, which I think are incredibly important. So what I'm gonna do is tell you a little bit about the epi, talk to you about what of our, our challenges and opportunities are, talk about all the different types of presentations and tell you in some instances of how um, bad our tests are, and then think about what we're dealing with in terms of um, antimicrobial resistance and how we can become better stewards. So I'm gonna first start with this case. This is one of my patients, a 62-year-old man who presents with a perirectal lesion. He's sexually active with several male partners and engages in receptive anal intercourse. Physical exam is normal except for a painless perianal lesion. He has a history of early syphilis and rectal chlamydia in the past year. What would you, what test would you use for a diagnosis? So you can use a nucleic acid for chlamydia and gonorrhea, dark field microscopy, a treponemal EIA, an RPR, a lesion biopsy, or an HSV PCR. So, and it can be very challenging, especially um, the patient is um, just felt this lesion and felt like something was going on, um, and that's what that's when he um, he showed me and presented to me. Um, so, most people would get a RPR, 
Um, and we'll talk a little bit later. I'll give you, um, after I go through my spiel, um, we'll talk about what this actually is and what he ended up having. So keep that in mind. So <clears throat> most of you are aware that we're having an epidemic of SDIs for the sixth year in a row. Um, we've got extremely high rates of the reportable SDIs, syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. Um, one thing that you may not be aware of is that there's, there's really a marked increase in um, female syphilis, um, and because of that, there's a dramatic increase in congenital syphilis. What you may not be aware of as well is, because this happened right around COVID, there's a now a national um, strategic plan for sexually transmitted infections um, that is available on the website down below. So what are our challenges? Why, why are we having difficulty with this? Because there's currently a syndemic going on between STIs, viral hepatitis, HIV, and substance use disorder. Um, also, there's um, a lot of the STIs can be asymptomatic. Chlamydia and gonorrhea at the throat and the anus, 99% of the time they have, you have no symptoms. Or they have an atypical presentation. And those of you that have a lot of experience with syphilis know that syphilis can look like anything. Um, the antimicrobial resistance challenges that we're having, both with um, Neisseria gonorrhea and also with an organism I don't have time to talk about today, Mycoplasma genitalium. And then what did COVID do? And I hate to bring COVID into an SDI talk, but the reason I am is because during the time of lockdown, what were our patients with SDI supposed to do? How are they getting treated? Um, we had decreased um, program capacity, workforce got diverted to other places. We had antimicrobial shortages, remember when everybody was using azithromycin for COVID. Um, now we have current problems with benzathine shortages. Um, and just for your knowledge, there's no um, STI test that's FDA cleared for self-collection. So I list down, I'm not gonna go a lot into self-collection or the point of care diagnostics, but I just wanted to make you aware that we now have very excellent tests at point of care for detection of chlamydia and gonorrhea. Um, and I list them down below. Um, one of the ones that I think is really exciting is the chlamydia gonorrhea um, Binks test, which you can make that diagnosis as a point of care in 20 minutes. Um, so I list that down there in terms of that, the ones that are kind of commercially available and can be in your office. You don't have to wait several days. You can get an immediate diagnosis. So these are the challenges that we're dealing with. So when we think about prevention, um, there's many things we think about in terms of our toolkit. You have to do an adequate behavioral risk assessment to look at who's at risk for STIs. Um, you need to screen because, as I mentioned, most STIs are asymptomatic, and to routinize that screening like we do with talking to people about um, drug use, alcohol, to brush, depression, intimate partner violence. Um, we talked about on the slide before about non-clinical uh, trust testing strategies. There's now strategies where you can order your own STI screening on the web. Um, there's a great program called I Want the Kit um, that people can do. You need to vaccinate proactively for hepatitis A and B, monkeypox, and HPV. Manage partners so the patient doesn't get reinfected. And then the thing I want to spend a couple slides on is about the doxypep, which um, um, Dr. Bedino showed you some of the, the data. 
Um, the first graph I list up there is from um, Jean-Paul Molina's study that was uh, published um, a number of years ago showing a reduction in chlamydia and syphilis. There was not a decrease in gonorrhea in that study, and the thought was because the prevalence of tetracycline-resistant gonorrhea um, is about 60 to 70%, which is different than the US, where we have about 20 to 30% tetracycline resistance. And then if you actually look to see who is getting the SDIs in the um, uh, Ipergay study, 39% um, um, of the participants accounted for 86% of all STIs. So I want you to think about that. Uh, as we start thinking about who to use this in, the broad, kind of your broad stroke, or a more restrictive approach where you base it on behaviors or number of STIs in the next year. So I want you to think about that. Then we had the DOXYPEP study which was presented at IAS, um, CROI, and the recent publication that just came out in New England Journal of Medicine, looking at patients that were living with HIV as well as patients on PrEP. And the use of doxy, 200 milligrams given within 24 to 72 hours, had a decrease in chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis in patients being followed for a year. Then the DOXYVAC um, study was also presented at CROI and used both the doxypep and the meningococcal B vaccine, which I talked about before. And in this study, even though it was done on France, there was a decrease in syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia as well using this study, and about a 46% decrease in um, gonorrhea acquisition in those that got meninge B vaccine. So how do we take all this data, put it together, and think about how to use it? CDC is working on draft guidance to give some kind of federal guidance for where to go. But as I told you before, there's three trials now that have shown a decrease in STIs with using this intervention. The Ipergay, the DoxyPep, and the DoxyVac. All those studies involved MSM and transgender women. We don't have any data in heterosexual men. And then also at CROI, um, there was the DPEP study, which was a study done on women in Africa that were on HIV PrEP that did not have any efficacy noted by using this doxy in the same way, 200 milligrams within 24 to 72 hours after sex. Again, they, we just presented the abstract at the meeting, and more deep diving needs to be done in terms of the adherence and how good these women were at adhering to the doxy. So thinking about the bigger picture, how should this be used and what patient population should you use this in? Broad use, restrictive use. Um, thinking about what we wanna think about in terms of antimicrobial stewardship. Who are the population that we should most likely go after in terms of thinking about it? We have the MSM, the transgender, and then Traeger presented a nice poster um, from the School of Public Health at CROI looking at trying to model what would happen, looking at the Fenway Clinic, and found that um, STIs, one STI in the last year in a high-risk population um, was associated with um, the most kind of bang for your buck, and it didn't matter whether you had HIV or whether you were on PrEP. The other thing I want to mention is what about the resistance? That came up in one of the questions, and that is something that I'm underlying concerned about in two, two reasons. 
I list for you two publications, which if you're really interested in this, I really want you to look at the um, publication that's in the far right. This is a study that's in Impress in STIs, and it talks about the collateral damage from using doxycycline and thinking about the mechanisms of doxycycline resistance. So there's two ways. One is either plasmid-mediated and one's chromosomally-mediated. So the issue is there's examples in the literature of tetracycline resistance that kind of travels along with other resistance determinants, uh, in particular the beta-lactams, the fluoroquinolones, and the macrolides. Um, and so there are some downstream effects that may be possible. And when you actually look at the number of people that were measured for tetracycline resistance, both in the Ypergay study and in um, the Meyer study that was done here in the US, the doxypep, there was actually a very small number of people. So we don't have good data is the bottom line. So if you're going to be using this, um, in patients that you choose through some shared decision-making with your, with your patients, we better be looking for antimicrobial resistance, number one, in terms of some surveillance, and they still need to come in every three months to get STI screened. Um, so there, there are some untoward consequences of this. Um, there's no free lunch. And it needs to be really careful in terms of the implementation. So think what you do with HIV prep. You don't write a prescription for doxycycline for 30 days with five refills, which some people are doing. So I will, there needs to give a lot of thought about some collateral damage associated with this. So with that, I'm going to run into quickly, we'll talk a little bit about syphilis, and then I'll tell you about gonorrhea. I told you that the rates are going up, but what's really important here is look at the decrease in the male to female rate ratios so, and look at the rise in, in women. So the dramatic rise in female um, syphilis that we're seeing is very dramatic. And this just is a visual clue in, in uh, between uh, 2012 and 2021. If you're blue here, it's bad. <laughs> Okay, so this is um, what's happened to syphilis. So syphilis is pretty much everywhere in terms of the dramatic increase we're seeing in syphilis. The other thing I mentioned is substance abuse. Even though this publication was a number of years old, um, what you see is the association with heroin use and meth use. Um, and so there, especially this is a big problem in women. And just like we had in the late 80s when we had transactional sex associated with cocaine use, now it's um, uh, meth and heroin. I put this busy picture up because I think it's incredibly illustrative and the way we think about syphilis. Syphilis confuses everyone, bottom line. Me included. Um, and I've been doing this a long time. And the reason it's so confusing is because don't, patients don't read the textbook and things don't go linearly from stage one to two to tertiary or late latent. So what's important here, as you can see on the slide, about 40% of people, this is a disseminated disease. So you have primary syphilis, it's everywhere in your body. It disseminates, just like Lyme disease, another spirochete. The other thing is you don't have to go from primary to secondary. You can go from primary to latent, and then you can go latent back to secondary. So I think this kind of graph really kind of tells you about the complexity of syphilis. It's a very complicated. 
um, and the presentations can be very complicated. So this is, here's some of my graphic pictures. These are all patients that I have personally taken care of in the last year um, in terms of these really interesting presentations, how different they look, okay? Some can look lacy rash, some can be nodular, some can be papulosquamous. Um, the, the one in the bottom is a patient I was asked to see by my PA because they were having a sore throat. Question was, should I send to ENT? I said, no, just get an RPR. Um, and that's what he had was he had syphilis. So, so I'm saying it can do anything. And so these pictures are just to give you an example of the different presentations and also how different it can look on different skin. So the problem we have with syphilis is we don't have a point of care test, right? And if a patient presents with an ulcer or a lesion, how are you gonna make the diagnosis? Are you gonna start with an RPR and confirm with a treponemal test? Well, if you do that with an ulcer, you're gonna miss 30% of the patients because you have a false negative in your RPR um, when you have a primary ulcer. What about if you start with a treponemal test with the reverse sequence um, testing? You're more likely to have a positive treponemal test, but also if it's a low prevalence population, you have an increased amount of false positives. So the bottom line with syphilis is what's in red. Never interpret a serology in the absence of looking at a patient and the clinical history. You can't make a diagnosis by syphilis just by a blood test. You have to examine the patient and put it into context. So this is complicated. These tests are old, they're not accurate, and they're fraught with problems. But this is what we have to work with. Some of the patients that I showed you on the previous slide um, were diagnosed, um, we had a negative RPR, and the patient on the second to the right at the end that um, has the hypopigmentation had 12 RPRs. I was asked to see him and I said, get a skin biopsy, and that's how we made the diagnosis. His prozone was negative. The reason he didn't respond to anything is because he had zero T cells. He, had, he, couldn't make any, he couldn't make any antibodies. So again, if you have a high index of suspicion, you do a prozone or you biopsy, and then tell your pathologist to do a silver stain. Other things that's really cool about syphilis that's new. So this is some interesting data that swabbed at different orifices in people with different stages of syphilis. And what's fascinating um, from the study that was done in Australia um, and then a study that we presented at ID Week showed that even in the absence of lesions in the mouth, in the rectum, um, that especially in secondary syphilis, we find the organism in the mouth. And in latent syphilis, in the study that we presented at ID Week, if you look there in terms of patients that had early latent syphilis, 60% of them had organisms in the mouth, um, even though there was no detectable lesion. So this is kind of the next step. So we're looking at this potentially as a diagnostic tool. And think about this in terms of what we, what we counsel people in terms of transmission. Thinking about skin-to-skin um, -skin contact is the main way that we transmit syphilis. But interesting now that we've got this data. So these, these are really interesting data. Three other things you need to know about. A study that came out in CID shows that previous syphilis alters the clinical presentation. So that if you've had syphilis before, you may not have such a florid 
um, presentation or there may be a more muted presentation. Number two, if your patient gets diagnosed with, has a positive RPR and you're bringing them in to evaluate them, to stage them, if it's two weeks before they get staged, you need to repeat their RPR um, because basically the titer can go up and you may have a new baseline. So because this titer kind of fluctuates back and forth and if you're looking for a change of titer over time, as you would look for a response, you have to do it kind of in real time. So if it's been a long time from the time you diagnose them, they need to be brought in. Number three, study up at the top that was done in Australia. Traditionally, we've been taught that the ulcers are painless. This study basically showed that um, you can have very severely painful lesions, especially around the perianus, 20 to 30 percent of the time. Um, and these, in th this study, we also look for herpes. Only 8% had concomitant herpes. So syphilis can cause painful lesions. Previous syphilis alters the course of subsequent syphilis, and there's a fluctuating titer, especially between when you get the test and when the patient actually comes in for treatment. Also, non-sexual transmission, something you may not have thought, thought about. Um, if, the mouth, if the finger is in an area or some other extremity, I had a human bite on an arm um, from somebody a couple years ago for somebody got a human bite and got syphilis transmitted that way. Um, just be aware that syphilis can be um, transmitted different ways. So basically what happens in the mouth is either um, is human mass when in certain cultures where they do mastication of food and then transfer it to the baby. Um, when it's kind of all chewed up, that if there's syphilis in the mouth, it can be then transmitted to the kid. Um, so just know that this exists. So um, what about CNS involvement? I mentioned before that invasion of the CSF is very common amongst adults. Um, CNS, who should I LP? That's a question we get all the time. So the issue is you should LP somebody that's got neurologic signs or symptoms, a reactive RPR, not somebody that's got a CD4 count less than 350 and a, and a RPR greater than 1 to 32. Um, for ocular syphilis, it can affect any part of the eye. Only about 30% of patients have involvement of their CSF. And otic syphilis, we're seeing more of that. Patients with hearing loss, tinnitus, most have a normal LP, but they, you don't really need to LP them if you're thinking about it. They just need to get started on IV penicillin. This is a patient um, of mine that developed cardiovascular syphilis 10 years after he had secondary syphilis. You can see the big fusiform aneurysm, and when he was taken to surgery, when we looked at the pathology, he had evidence of histologic evidence of syphilis. So again, we're seeing more of this as well. Um, my favorite picture in the world is a little guy in the middle who thought he could cure his syphilis by cupping. Um, he, I said, you can try it, but it's probably not going to work. Um, and he came in when he realized it wasn't working for him. So um, how many shots should you give for patients with syphilis? So we have multiple observational studies that have shown that you don't need to give three shots for early syphilis in patients that have HIV. Um, but we have done a definitive trial, the RCT of one versus three shots. The results will be presented at ID week. Um, and what about alternatives to penicillin? 
Doxycycline, we have limited data, um, and more people are using doxy because we've had benzathine shortages. Um, there's more data on ceftriaxone. I show you a, a trial that was just published in France. It wasn't an RCT. It was a retrospective study. There's a lot of problems with the study design, um, but it appears to work. Um, and then there's a pilot data looking at suffixime as well, using it multiple times a day. Um, and so I list down there also other um, meta-analysis for you to look at in terms of ceftriaxone. So this is our gentleman that I presented to you before. Um, so basically, this is what I did. Um, he had four STIs. Um, he had a negative RPR. Um, and we did a prozone that was negative. He had a positive EIA. Um, his herpes PCR was negative. I treated him empirically because I thought this was syphilis looking at it for primary syphilis. I repeated the RPR two weeks later, and it was 1 to 32. He also had rectal chlamydia, gonorrhea, and he had acute hepatitis C. So the point is STIs travel together. So if you see one, you test for others, um, and you will um, likely find um, a lot of others. So this unfortunate gentleman got four STIs. Next, I'm going to move very quickly to gonorrhea. Um, this is just a slide to tell, tell us that most gonorrheal infections are actually diagnosed in the community, um, not in uh, STD clinics. And we have a huge problem with antimicrobial resistance. Gonorrhea can cause a multitude of clinical symptoms and manifestations, but I really, I'm gonna talk just briefly about what I think is important for you guys to realize that there's been a resurgence of, and that's of disseminated gonorrhea. Traditionally, we've been taught it happens in a very small percentage of people. It's mostly associated in the past with women around the time of menses, also in individuals that have decreased complement. It usually presents one of two ways, either a monoarticular septic arthritis or a tenosynovitis polyarthritis syndrome. The picture on the, the right-hand side is a woman I was asked to see um, because she was penallergic, and they didn't, re they didn't put together her swollen ankle and her gonorrhea uh, results from her vagina that she had disseminated gonorrhea. So this is what's happening with this. There's a shift in the epidemiology. It's mostly now occurring in men, older men, associated with drug use, um, and there appears to be really an association as well with um, uh, drug use, mostly meth. And if you have a patient that you has disseminated gonorrhea, there's a reporting system through the CDC so that we could get this information um, and actually to um, look at the isolates. We're doing whole genome sequencing um, on these isolates. And then I also wanted to bring up this as well. We've had three cases at Emory in the last year of gonococcal, excuse me, gonococcal endocarditis. Um, and they presented very um, differently. One um, was a um, thrombus and a brachial artery. Um, one was uh, an aortic valve endocarditis. And the 17-year-old female is the most tragic case I think I've ever been involved with. This woman had sex for the first time, had PID, um, trichomonas, aortic root abscess, and died of gonococcal endocarditis. Um, this organism is extremely 
um, invasive and destructive, and it was it was a horrible case. But we're seeing more of this. Like I said, at my institution, we've seen three cases. So just wanted to make you aware um, that we're seeing more cases of this as well. This is our problem. Um, we've had increasing amounts of antimicrobial resistance. CDC has been monitoring this for the past um, 30 years in terms of looking at antimicrobial resistance patterns. And this is how the determination is made about which antibiotics to use based on our own isolates here in the United States. And by looking at this data and looking to see what happened, as you can see, remember in 2015, the recommendation was for, du for dual therapy. And then what was noted to happen was there was a little uptick that was starting to be seen, not on this slide, but in suffixing. And that was the recommendation that we should um, um, use azithromycin at the same time as um, ceftriaxone. And then what, did you, what do you see happen with the azithromycin going, um, the resistance just went way, way up. And the recommendation um, was made I'm going to skip this in the, uh, for time reasons. Um, recommendation was made in 2020 um, to just use monotherapy because what we were seeing before. And the initial reason with the, with the azithromycin to be combined with the ceftriaxone was it was thought to be protective and to protect the ceftriaxone. But instead what happened is azithromycin kind of broke through. Um, and you can see the high amount of resistance. And there was more resistance that we saw within MSM um, than in men who have sex with women or women alone. So the recommendation to change to a single dose, um, ceftriaxone at a higher dose, um, was made thinking about the, anti, the, micro, um, the microbiome impact, especially of azithromycin, stewardship, what I just showed you, the data. And also we kind of dove deep into the PKPD considerations, thinking about how different the pharmacokinetics are and truthfully, we know that it's harder to get rid of gonorrhea in the throat um, than it is at anywhere else. And then looking at PKPD um, and thinking that, that the ceftriaxone at 500 would kind of check all the boxes. The other thing that's new, because the hotbed of antimicrobial resistance for gonorrhea is in the mouth, and what's recommended is a test of cure in 7 to 14 days. Are there other antibiotics? The short answer is no. Um, this is looking at ertapenem, genomycin, phospholmycin, and basically we know that ertapenem works, but who wants to give a nuclear bomb for gonorrhea? Um, and there's two other, there was two other oral drugs that are in development. Um, kind of the problem with them has been, of course, the trials were started right around COVID. <laughs> so that's the other problem. And then we got this a number of months ago with an ice, two isolates from uh, Massachusetts that have elevated MICs um, to both um, ceftriaxone and azithromycin. So this was the first time that we had decreased susceptibility reported here in the United States. So it is coming, um, and we're expecting to see more of this in the future. So if you do see something in terms of having a gonorrhea treatment failure, there's, again, um, a database um, can, that you can fill out about your patient and contact somebody at CDC to help with treatment recommendations. So the last, I think I've just got a little bit uh, time left, but I just want to share with you this. 
um, presentation. This is the guy I was telling you about um, that had recurrent gonorrhea 30 times. Um, and full disclosure, this guy was sent to me 10 years ago. So I'm still taking care of him. So even though I have doxypep there, doxypep should not be your answer because it wasn't available then. So tell me what interventions you would consider for this patient. I hope you like the BYOP. Um, bring your own partner. So we did a little bit of everything for this guy. Um, so <laughs> we did have his partner, but he, there was quite a few of his partners that came in with him. <laughs> um, anyway, this is what I did. Behavioral counseling, the reason he had so many SDIs is because nobody asked him. He was an escort. He was a college kid and was trying to pay for his college. Um, we had case management, peer navigator. I put him in studies, anything I could do to see him more frequently. I put him in a gonorrhea treatment trial for a new drug, and he was one of the three patients that developed failure, clinical failure due to a mutation. Frequent SDI testing, I got him down to four to five infections per year, which was 30, which I thought was really good. Um, and then now to current time, my next option was to put him in the, um, the vaccine trial, the Bexero trial, which we talked about before. So I mentioned this before. This was a, a poster that we presented at ECMID, which is the European ID meetings. And this basically shows you on the right all the studies that have been done um, and what the effectiveness um, is. There's about a 95% homology between the outer membrane of Neisseria gonorrhea and a group B meningococcal vaccines. Um, we're still trying to learn more about this and why it works. Um, but, but this was interesting, and I said, let's put you in this vaccine study. Um, and there's also an animal, a mouse animal model that shows effectiveness, which I won't go into. So this is what we did. And you can see on the right what happened. <laughs> so it took, him, it took three times to get him into the study. He had gonorrhea twice before I could get him vaccinated. Um, then at visit three, he had gonorrhea again, and then he had gonorrhea at visit five. Um, and he had rectal, chlamydia, and then MPOX at the end. So I don't know whether he got the vaccine or placebo, um, but I tried. And he's still down to about four infections per year. So my last slide um, with that whirlwind is in terms of thinking about the, where kind of the most state-of-the-art recommendations are. CDC has um, treatment guidelines that they've been um, made available since the um, late 70s. Um, they've evolved quite a bit, um, but you can, get it as, you can get these recommendations as a hard copy um, or you can get them on your smartphone. Um, there's a hope that this is in some way gonna go to more of a web-based platform, but that's being developed. All the evidence behind it is listed um, on the website. And the other nice thing on the website is their screening recommendations by population. Um, so with that whirlwind, I want to thank you for your attention, and I'll be happy to answer any questions. So uh, that was spectacular, Dr. Workowski, and I've got a bird in the hand here before I get to the, to the tablet questions. So the first question for you, if someone doesn't tolerate DoxyWell for DoxyPep, 
do they have to take 200 milligrams all at once, or is it okay to get 100 milligrams times two anytime during the 72-hour window? I don't. I'm not sure this really re pertains to STIs. So yeah. Maybe so that's the issue is normally we would give Doxy 100 milligrams BID, right? And right. so the the issue is um, what I didn't have time to go into. There was a study that was done also within the Doxy Pep section at Croy that looked at. Um, a study that was done in volunteers where they were looking at tissue levels um, of doxycycline both in men and women and rectal biopsies from men um, and vaginal samples in women. Um, and the good news is they looked at chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis at the doses that had been done in the studies, which is the 200 milligrams, and all of them reached the threshold above the MIC of the organism. So I can't comment on the 100 BID, um, so I don't know the answer to that. I can only say that from the data, um, it should be 200 milligrams, and the th important things about that is they need to take it with a full glass of water and sitting up. Um, pill esophagitis is a real thing, um, and people have to be really careful. You just can't take a sip of water. You have to drink a whole glass of water. So. If they can't tolerate it at the dose that's recommended, um, don't try to be creative here <laughs> um, because I can't tell you about effectiveness. I just have no data. Um, interesting question, the next one. Um, why are folks more concerned about doxy resistance to prevent STIs when providers use doxy daily to treat acne? Because the do well, the dose is different, right? The, the acne dose is like 25 milligrams a day. Here you're talking about 200 milligrams a day. And um, what, we, what we think we're concerned about is the people that are, people that are taking it as doxyprep instead of PEP. So they're t either taking it daily or um, the average number of times in Epergay was three times a week. Um, and as I mentioned before, one of, there's a provider I know that was trying to give a patient a prescription for 30 days with five refills. Um, so it, it may be, and we're still learning this, but the issue is, again, I mentioned there's two me mechanisms of doxy resistance, or tetracycline or doxy resistance. One is plasmid mediated and one's chromosomally mediated. And some of that depends on what we know about other organisms and how organisms develop resistance, in particular E. coli, um, to tetracyclines. And the kind of some of these resistance mutations um, happen together. And so the more you, you show an organism the antibiotic, um, the more likely you are to develop resistance. So the issue with the, do with the doxy is it's really, really low level, and it doesn't reach anything in terms of significance um, in terms of what you would need to inhibit um, chlamydia, syphilis, or gonorrhea. Okay, why don't we take a question from the microphone here. Hi. about, there we go, looking for reassurance about doxycycline in latent syphilis, uh, number one, because there's now a shortage of benzathine penicillin. And the other thing that always comes up is someone who's had negative RPR for 20 years, but now the test paradigm is flipped and the algorithm is they now have a positive antibody, but a negative RPR. And in the new guidelines, we're supposed to treat them all for late latent syphilis 
which isn't what we used to do, but that's the guideline now, and who wants to give them three shots of penicillin, so, so yeah, your so opinion. I, yeah, so I, I want to know, are you talking about early latent or late latent? Late latent. So for the, 28 the, days. Okay, so the issue is that we don't have good data, we have limited data on doxy in that exact scenario that you're talking about. Most of the data we have for doxy is on early late, not late latent. And if you're concerned about the treponemal test being false positive, then you get a second treponemal test. Right. So that's the first thing I would do, is, is to make sure that you're dealing with a, a right. positive that, that gets treponemal all, so test. That automatically gets done in our institution, but then you have somebody who always had a positive RPR. Now they've got, they probably had syphilis 20 years ago, and they got, you know, whatever, penicillin for a toothache, and whatever. They have a negative RPR now, and the guideline is to treat them as mm -hmm. late latent syphilis. Um, I'm guessing we might get some new doxycycline data because there's a shortage of benzathine penicillin, so more people are going to be doing this, and this would be a great opportunity. But your thoughts on doxycycline specifically for late latent syphilis? So it works. I mean, it probably works, but we just have limited data. I mean, that's all I can tell okay. you is we, we have limited data. Um, and. I would be really, what I would do in that instance is one of two things. If your person, if your patient is sexually active, I would get a prozone on the RPR and make sure the RPR wasn't right. falsely negative. Um, and I would get a second treponemal test. But I think what you're left with is treating them. And I wish we had more yeah. data, but we don't. And the issue with the benzathine shortages, just so that you guys are aware, it's not a manufacturing issue, it's a distribution issue, and it's also due to the amoxicillin shortage that we have, and so there's an ongoing amoxicillin shortage, so people are using benzathine instead. Huh. That's why. Okay. Okay, I'm, I, we have one more from the microphones, and then we'll go back to our Slido questions, yes? Hi, so for guidance for those of us that are in STI clinics, and we have lots of frequent flyers coming in, with some of these things. So one of my patients presented with a history of syphilis, had um, RPR of 1 to 32 a year ago, and they were treated. They came back this year. still 1 to 32? No, 1 to 64. So now the question is uh, in regards to um, staging as well as uh, treatment. Is it big times 1? Is it big times 3? Uh, so, so, to so help with... Yeah, help with that. So the difficulty is, number one, is that, as I mentioned with the RPR titers, what you want to see is a, you want to see um, a sustained increase in your RPR. So what I would do with that, because when, if you've ever done an RPR, it can be very subjective. And so it may be the way somebody read it. So I would repeat it, number one. And then to see if there's a sustained rise which means that I would repeat it, and again, two to three weeks if there's no signs. Okay. And then the sexual history is part of that, to determine if this person is having sex and you just can't tell, they get a shot of benzathine. You can't tell. Which is what I did. Yes. <laughs> that, I mean, that's why sometimes you can't tell. And so you just have to be careful and just give them. We have those. It's, it's a problematic. The test, the test is difficult. It really is. And you have to use your judgment. So okay, when are there going to be new tests? <laughs> okay. So when are they going to be new? Well, the onus is on the manufacturers to develop tests. So we're, we're actually partnering right now with NIH to develop a specimen bank for patients with well-characterized syphilis and swabs from multiple places to have diagnostic companies jump in, because that's what they're missing. 
they don't have a well-characterized specimen bank, and so that's what we're developing for them, so that they could do some of this work. Okay, we have kind of two questions related to gonorrhea. Can you uh, provide a little more insight about using genomycin for the treatment of GC when you can't use ceftriaxone? And for complicated, disseminated gonococcal infection, would you treat IM, IB, and what duration? Okay, so the first thing about the, gen the gentamicin, um, so there was um, a study that was done now about 15 years ago looking at um, gentamicin effectiveness. The problem is that um, it doesn't work well at the throat, that's number one. So it has to be urogenital or rectal. Um, and it usually um, should be done in combination um, with azithromycin as per the guidance. Um, it's a lot of the times people don't want to use it because, or they don't want to use ceftriaxone because a patient has a penicillin allergy. So that's the main thing is to counsel them that the third generation cephalosporin and the cross reactivity with penicillins is less than 5% if you actually look at the data. There's no problem with giving ceftriaxone. That's the main issue why people are using it. So um, the other thing that, that we get concerned about, you can always do um, if you're using gentamicin because it's not as effective, you can do a test of cure. Um, and especially, like I said, the throat, 75% effective. Anywhere else, it's um, 80 to 90% effective. So you can do a test of cure, and the test to cure is best done 10 to 14 days afterwards. Second question was regarding um, disseminated gonorrhea. And in terms of duration of therapy, we have no idea. We're shooting in the dark. Okay, so there's no control trials. We don't know how to treat it. If they've got endocarditis, they've got meningitis, we're going to treat for four to six weeks, um, or, or evidence of um, septic arthritis, you can treat longer, but we don't know the answer to that. IV or IM, um, recommend if you can give IV in terms of just the penetration into the area, especially the joints or some compromised area, but you can use IM if their butt can take it. You know, there's so much a butt can take, and you can probably put about a gram in somebody's butt without them really trying to kill you. Um, it's really painful. Not as bad as benzathine, but, you know, we try to mix it with some lidocaine. Um, to, but it's usually a gram that you can tolerate well in your, in your bottom. Okay. Uh, when would you screen for LGV or be suspicious about it? So we don't, we don't have a screening test for LGV. Um, so the issue is LGV is a um, strain of chlamydia. Um, and where would we find LGV? Um, LGV can present as um, bilateral inguinal buboes or can present as rectal proctitis. Um, or there's a, um, can also present in a very strange way um, that we have a publication a couple years ago of a oral ulcer. It can present as an ulcer first, and then it can go away, and then you can get the lymphadenopathy. So if you're suspicious, like the patient that I presented, I actually, when I told you that he had LGV, um, what happened is I actually swabbed the lesion um, and sent that for chlamydia. It was positive for chlamydia, and then you have to send the specimen to your state or a reference lab to get the genotype back. So it's not, there's no point of care test. That takes three weeks. So if you're suspicious for LGV, you would just treat for a longer period of time. This gentleman was not symptomatic. He just had an asymptomatic um, 
uh, asymptomatic nodules. So the time I got the LGV results, he was already cured. He was already fine. Okay, we're a little bit over time for Q&A, so any of you who didn't get your questions answered will be saving those and asking Dr. Workowski to respond to them um, either through our website or in response um, by email. So thank you very much.